Welcome to iScanian Conversation, where we talk about cybersecurity, military defense, crisis communications, and much more with industry experts from around the globe. Stay tuned. At the same time, there was congressional testimony in front of both houses of Congress in the United States, looking at the role of bots in the spread of misinformation. So we looked at this too. We used multiple sophisticated bot detection algorithms to find the bots in our data and to pull them out. So we pulled them out, we put them back in, and we compared what happens to our measurement. And what we found was that, yes, indeed, bots were accelerating the spread of false news online, but they were accelerating the spread of true news at approximately the same rate which means bots are not responsible for the differential diffusion of truth and falsity online. We can't abdicate that responsibility because we, humans, are responsible for that spread. Now, everything that I have told you so far, unfortunately for all of us, is the good news. The reason is because it's about to get a whole lot worse. And two specific technologies are going to make it worse. We are going to see the rise of a tremendous wave of synthetic media, fake video, fake audio, that is very convincing to the human eye. And this will be powered by two technologies. The first of these is known as generative adversarial network. This is a machine learning model with two networks, a discriminator, whose job it is to determine whether something is true or false, and a generator whose job it is to generate synthetic media. So the synthetic generator generates synthetic video or audio, and the discriminator tries to tell, is this real or is this fake? And in fact, it is the job of the generator to maximize the likelihood that it will fool the discriminator into thinking the synthetic video and audio that it is creating is actually true. Imagine a machine in a hyperloop trying to get better and better at fooling us. This combined with a second technology, which is essentially the democratization of artificial intelligence to the people. The ability for anyone without any background in artificial intelligence or machine learning to deploy these kinds of algorithms to generate synthetic media makes it ultimately so much easier to create videos. The White House issued a false doctored video of a journalist interacting with an intern who was trying to take his microphone. They removed frames from this video in order to make his actions seem more punchy. And when videographers and stuntmen and women were interviewed about this type of technique, they said, yes, we use this in the movies all the time to make our punches and kicks look more choppy and more aggressive. They then put out this video and partly used it as justification to revoke Jim Acosta, the reporter's press pass, uh, from the White House. And CNN had to sue to have that press pass reinstated. There are about five different paths that I can think of that we can follow to try and address some of these very difficult problems today. Each one of them has promise, but each one of them has its own challenges. That was Sunil Aram and David August, professor of management at MIT and a founding partner 
at Manifest Capital in November of 2018 TED Talk called How We Can Protect Truth in the Age of Misinformation. These comments were made several years ago, and since then we have seen a proliferation of fake news, misinformation, and deepfakes. I'd like to welcome you to part two of our series, Next Level Threat, Manipulated, the Challenge of Disinformation Campaigns in the Age of Synthetic Media. Joining me today in part two are iScan Senior Advisors, James Chow, Tate Nurkin, and Ken Babin. I'm Andrew Vosco. I am the Managing Director of iScan Group. And with that, I hand it over to James, who's leaving this session. Thanks, Andrew. So at the end of part one, I think we got a good taste of the development of disinformation in the context of today's geopolitical situation. But I could argue that, hey, look, things have always been tense around the world. Disinformation isn't exactly new as we discussed, um, but there appear to be some developments that we should worry about. So how worried should we be, Tate? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm worried. <laughs> I think we should all be worried uh, about this. Yeah, and I would, you know, I try, I try and balance when, whenever looking at a, an issue that I'm examining, I try and balance between sort of dismissiveness and alarmism, um, because I think a lot of times there is a tendency, especially in this information environment where the most discordant, the, the loudest, the most strident views are the ones that get heard. So, People tend to run to one of those two poles. I, I try to stay away from them, but I guess I would say that I am closer to that alarmist end of the spectrum than I am to the dismissive one, but much closer, in fact, because we already are seeing some of the, the ways in which disinformation is affecting our country here in the United States and other countries around the world. Uh, it is, uh, it's having a, a strong negative effect on, on discourse here. It is certainly, I think, uh, continuing to polarize politics. And I think there's another component of this and, and undermining institutions, all of that. I would also argue that there is a, a very real sort of military component to this that sometimes gets lost, which is the ability to create or to, to distort satellite imagery or maps or anything like that, which could have pretty terrible consequences if, for example, one military commander is looking at a map that has been altered and there is a you know, a picture of a weapons facility where there's actually, you know, kind of a hospital. And, and so, you you know, all of a sudden you have a very different, you begin to target that, what you think is weapons facility and what is actually a hospital. This is stuff that is actually within the military community being discussed and being concerned. There's a lot of concern about the ability to alter, you know, sort of geographic images. So so I think the, the concern should be widespread. I think it should be both deep and, and broad because I, I think we are starting to see some of the impacts of this. And I think we are only likely to see more sophisticated disinformation again as we see some of these technologies mature and be deployed. Yeah, exactly. That that, that last point, it, it, it crystallizes it for me. Like we, we are, are only scratching the surface of the potential dangers of this. So it, disinformation, the, the worry should not be about whether some fake news is being spread or whether you know this article is false or not. It's like it's the it's the military um, applications of disinformation. It, the, an example of uh, of Tesla vehicles, the autonomous driving system being fooled by slight alterations to like the lane markings uh, or to um, I think patterns on, on the display. It, it, all of these things that could affect or, or or negatively impact core infrastructure. I mean, this is this is stuff people just aren't thinking about. And, and it's something we need to start thinking about and appreciating if we're going to uh, if we're going to start confronting this threat. At the same time, I'd also like to point out that 
I mean, I think there's a there's almost like a short term, long term thing here. Like when elections come around or, or referendums, we tend to focus on disinformation. Like, oh, what you know, what are the bots doing? What's Russia doing? What's China doing? People don't necessarily appreciate what's happening in between these elections and reference. There's a sort of a long term endemic disinformation campaign being waged or multiple disinformation campaigns being waged. That's a slow and I like the word you use, Tate, this erosion of cohesion. And that is what they're trying to do. They're not there. It's a slow burn to that to that end. It's not a quick it's not intended to be quick. It's not trying to sever. It's trying to slowly, but just we don't even notice it. We don't until it's too late. And and perhaps that is the point that we've reached. So from one perspective, and and maybe I'm, I'm a little to the, uh, I guess, maybe more in the camp that thinks that maybe this isn't as big of a deal as as we all make it out to be, you know, influences on elections. I mean, if 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 the influence on the election and the most obvious one I can see is that it gets people to go vote and it reinforces their belief in something, is that necessarily a bad thing? So everybody votes more. Great. That's that's what our democracy is would like in, in a certain way. And um, if, if these campaigns do that, well, well, that's fine. And and if people become more passionate about things, well, well, that's fine, too, because they should be passionate about things. And, you know, I know it's nice to have the kumbaya moments about stuff and, and get all together and we're all one team. But it's the discourse now is a bit, you know, rougher than it used to be. And that's just the evolution of discourse. So there you have it. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I. I think voting is wonderful. I think it's great when we have an active democracy. I think it is important that that we have uh, at least some agreement on on facts. I mean, if you have a bunch of people voting based on perceptions that are utterly disconnected from objective real world reality, then I'd, I'm not sure that is the most salutary outcome that you could get. Even though you have more participation, you have participation that is uh, either intentionally misinformed or disinformed or or just ill-informed. And I, I don't know that that produces the, the, the types of outcomes. So, yeah, sure, I, I'm not would never discourage anyone from voting uh, in, an, in a democracy. But I do think that there, you know, the the introduction and reinforcement of narratives that are uh, undermining the same democracy that those people are participating in, no, I, I have a hard time getting behind that. So, and again, I'm not, I'm not just, this is happening across the political spectrum, but I, but I would say that you know, we, we have to be careful in balancing enthusiasm for, and, and, and for, for perspectives and making sure that those perspectives are attached to some uh, reality. I, you know, maybe that's naive, but I don't know. Kent, what are your thoughts? Yeah. You mentioned earlier, I think about how, disinformation polarization impacts the political environment. I don't understand the exact word that you use, but, and I think that's the, that to me is the problem. Like it's great to vote, but if the politics are, the political parties are changing in order to cater to a population, a voting population that's been so impacted by disinformation and, and, and this kind of erosion of cohesion, we're really, we're not, we're not achieving any sort of like, communal gain right in, in our society all we're, all the political parties then do is they're just representing the polarized groups that voted for them and then it just becomes a situation where nothing can get done because they, they just can't agree because they're so far apart and I think the politics often succeeds if it's if it happens in the center we're now moving away each side is moving away from the center and and the more we move away from the center the less can get done I know we're not here to talk about politics but 
it feels like political parties are mirroring the populations that are ultimately the ones being impacted by disinformation. Yeah. And I, and I also think that there is a danger now. I mean, we, there are plenty of stories uh, from different places around the world, including here in the States of the absolute, and this has happened for a long time, but it, but the demonization of individuals and, uh, and parties that has grown, I think more intense over the last several years as we've been exposed to all of this information uh, and disinformation and misinformation. So I don't know. It, it, it certainly feels like uh, a less constructive political environment. And I know that there has been bitter politics everywhere in the world for, for a long time, but I do think that these tools and the technologies that we're seeing now is just amplifying uh, those instincts. And uh, it, it does make it hard to get things done. It also creates, I think, more of a willingness to see the other side as an existential threat to your way of life, which, again, reduces the possibility for compromise and increases the possibility of something that very untoward. You guys make uh, a lot of good points and very well taken on this side. So I appreciate that. And, um, you know, the follow up question to, to all of this then is, is why is disinformation one of the biggest threats to open societies? I think part of the issue is that open societies are, are kind of built on this notion of free speech. They require free speech in order for people to promote their, their political views. It's then up to the people to decide what it is they want to believe, who they want to vote for. And, and disinformation takes advantage of that. It, it actually it preys on that exact fact, it, particularly when people are bombarded with information and they don't know what to believe because it just requires so much effort in order to try to fit, discern it. So, you know, th this is fertile ground for disinformation. And then governments of these open societies see what's going on, but they don't have the authoritarian mechanisms in order to you know, either control the flow of information or block access to the social media platforms or even just take general punitive measures uh, against anyone who doesn't follow the rules, they have to navigate this in a way that is free and fair and, and, and democratic. And, and that is ultimately, I think, very challenging. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. Um, the, uh, the many of the things that make Open societies are, are beneficial to open societies and to also create vulnerabilities that um, individuals and, and state actors have figured out how to exploit to varying degrees of, of success. So, yeah, the, our freedoms are, are things that we cherish, but they also create uh, challenges and, and especially in, in this age uh, where, um, you know, again, social media, I think governments have been slow and certainly social media companies have been slow, maybe intentionally so, to figure out what this information environment means and and not necessarily how to how to shut it down but how to ensure responsibly more responsible usage of it and and what it what it means in terms of freedom of speech rights so i don't know i agree with kent entirely the, the freedom of speech is an important and valuable a piece of our of open societies but it also creates new vulnerabilities that i'm not sure government has figured out how to how to address yeah and i think confirmation bias is one of these things that isn't, I mean, on one hand, social media platforms love it because it, it generates a lot of revenue. On the other hand, I'm not sure governments quite understand it, or if they do, they even use it to their own advantage. But we, we look at things like, I mean, income inequality or 
you know, lack of trust in institutions and, and people form these confirmation biases that they, that then, you know, when they go on social media or they're reading the news, they see, they just look for stories that confirm what they already believe. Mm -hmm. And social media is not doing anything. In fact, they're, they're making it worse, you know, simply through algorithmic editing or these uh, filter bubbles They're they're actually fortifying confirmation bias within people, groups of people by not ever showing competing points of view. And I know just anecdotally in the, in the run up to the, uh, the 2016 election, uh, I don't remember seeing a single post uh, on Facebook that con- contradicted my, I guess, liberal tended liberal left-leaning tendencies. It, it, it like I was, it was like I was living in a bubble. Now I'm not an American; I couldn't vote, but I, I, I have enough American friends that were posting, and I never saw a single post that contradicted general viewpoint. And, and this, again, anecdotal, but it, it, it shows that the power that social media has to control the narrative that people are reading, and if that means they're going to make more money, that, then they're going to do it. I, I'm actually not on Facebook. So that was a, a decision I've been grateful for for the last Smart. 15 years. <laughs> but, Smart. And, but yeah, and I stopped using my it. My wife is. Just... So I, I get that sort of refracted. Um, so it's a, the, you know, we get some of that. But but no, I mean, it, it does seem like these organizations have, uh, not just governmental, but the private sector as well, have been very slow to both recognize and cope with the threat. And in the case of Facebook, we're seeing revelations that, you know, this was part of the business model in many ways was to create and spur outrage and reinforce uh, strongly held opinions. Yeah, I'm not on Facebook either, but it sounds like the place for me, I I need somewhere (laughs) where where everything is confirmed that I'm doing, that I'm actually right. So, so, so I'll be, I'll be signing up tonight. Um, (laughs) So is the disinformation threat so scary because there, there are no clear solutions? I mean, I mean, you guys have outlined a lot of um, potentially or bad and potentially bad stuff that could happen from, from disinformation. What are the solutions and, and perhaps are there no clear solutions? I mean, I think the solutions are layered, right? And I think the most fundamental one is that citizens become more discerning uh, consumers of information. Now, that's not going to happen overnight, and it's certainly not going to happen across the board, right? People, some people, as Ken said earlier, aren't going to take the time to to go do their own fact-checking. Um, but I do think that having an understanding of, hey, look, not everything you read is true. And as we get more into sort of the deep fake uh, era, maybe not even everything you see is true. And that puts an enormous burden, first and foremost, on the consumer to be able to make uh, judgments about what they're seeing. And um, that requires education, I think. It requires conscious effort on the part of individuals who some of whom will be more likely to engage in that than others. I do think there is a role for, um, you know, using these same technologies that are uh, exploiting vulnerabilities uh, to detect. So, you know, if, if AI is central to deep fake creation, it's also central to deep fake detection and being able to create a, a sort of a library of deep fakes so that we can have, we can more easily detect them, uh, you know, across different social media platforms or, or, or other outlets. So there's, there's a lot of different things that can be done. I think at the governmental level, certainly you don't want to go too far down the road of restricting free speech, 
but you also want to maybe begin to understand the nature of the threat and the challenges that are out there a little bit better and begin to um, create create policies and maybe even just incentives for companies to behave more responsibly. Maybe it's not about restriction, although I think there probably is room for restriction. Maybe it's about incentivizing more more responsible behavior. So it's it's got to be a, a, a sort of a comprehensive solution. Um, but I do think ultimately the consumer has a role to play and a very important one. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I know one question, uh, Ted, I wanted to actually ask you is, is so when, when disinformation is detected, so let's say that, you know, Facebook puts up a label or Twitter or whatever says, oh, this is a question from a questionable source or whatever. But hasn't the damage already been done? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. In many cases, for sure. I mean, we've seen very poorly done synthetic media that that has been re, you know, retweeted, re you were shared um, tens of thousands of times as if it's fact, just because, hey, that's that that image, that video, that article is 100 percent what I believe. And I want this to be true. So therefore it is. And I'm going to share it with everyone else. And we can all uh, say how horrible dot who, you know, fill in the blank is. So. So, yeah, I think there is for a, a chunk of the population that reads this synthetic media or fake news or disinformation. Yeah, the damage is done as soon as it's been viewed and then shared because, you know, you can put as many you know, questionable source labels on it. They're still going to think that this is true. And even if they know it's not, they, they want it to be true. So they'll send it around as if it is. Yeah. I mean, and this is where I think that the, the threat is scary for me is that is that even if this disinformation is properly identified, like it doesn't mean much, as, as you just pointed out. I mean, so if I am from one, the, the kind of the, the opposite side of the spectrum from uh, the story that I'm reading and it's been labeled or sorry, if I'm on the same side of the spectrum as the story that I'm reading and that story has been labeled as false, it's unlikely that I'm going to trust that identification, that label, partly because, you know, fact checkers and, and this has been posed as a, as a solution by by social media platforms and, and governments is that fact checkers are susceptible to the same biases as everyone else that, that we there's that always the question who guards the guards or who checks the fact checkers. They fact checkers are from one side of the spectrum, and and if they can claim to be objective, but it's very very difficult to achieve pure true objectivity in fact checking, just like it is in media. You're going to be harder on the other side's stories than you are on your own. So it it brings this distrust of of fact checking then into the equation, and so. I personally am not sure that this is if that fact checking is a is a plausible solution, at least at scale. And and I worry, you know, as you mentioned, like that it, it, we need to maybe get to the source or, as you say, train or educate people in how to be more discerning when it comes to media. Yeah, yeah. But we'll which is tough to do. Later. It's tough to do at scale, right? I mean, yeah. you, you know, you can you can offer to anything. Certainly in schools, I, I would hope that that there is, again, a non-politically biased way to say, you know, this is how you collect and, and assess information. We, we did that uh, at Jane's for many years. We started an open source intelligence training uh, service that, uh, that you know, was, uh, was, I think, a useful thing, but it was predominantly focused on government entities. And I think that type of knowledge is really important. Uh, for for just the you know everyday consumer of information, it's again at scale. You're not going to be able to, to to do that. You can't force people to be trained on how to <laughs> consume information. But I do think that that absolutely critical. And I and I think part of this discussions like this and these discussions are happening in other forums as well. The awareness of the challenge of disinformation is is hopefully going up. 
Yeah. And that's a good place to start is, OK, let me take a half a second before I share this story to, to, to think, could this be? And, and, and hopefully more people will have that instinct, will build that instinct uh, over time. Yeah. And I think one other final point I'd like to add is that the like the the risk reward ratio of disinformation is very skewed. I, I think you mentioned earlier that it's very low, requires very few resources to yeah. conduct a disinformation campaign. And, and at the same time, there's also almost no risk of any sort of consequences for conducting a disinformation campaign, whether you're you know, Russia or sitting in your home and in, in, in a, wherever you happen to be, you can conduct a disinformation campaign and, and, and reap the benefits of it without incurring any of the risks. And this is, as long as that paradigm exists, I don't see how we can yeah, we even begin to confront this. And as long as disinformation is continues to be successful and, and proven to be successful over time, I mean, it just creates the situation in which we need to do something about it quickly, you know, before it gets out of hand. Again, great stuff. I mean, there's there are a number of solutions that you guys have pointed to. Um, to what degrees do we implement those uh, versus uh, what are the consequences on free speech, as an example? Uh, so a lot to think about. Again, thank you, gentlemen, for the time today and look forward to next time. Thank you for listening to iScan in Conversation. If you want to know more about today's topic, check out iScanGroup.com. Follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and hit the subscribe button.